well done, Oprah. You tell well, them. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. We'll see. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. Also, you can find us streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, at least. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, we're going to be talking about a bunch of those states that I rattled off there in our uh, partial affiliates list there at the top just now. Oh, good. A bunch of them coming up. A bunch of them have some really important governor's races coming up and uh, some really exciting ones, actually. I will look forward to speaking uh, with my guest, Dylan Scott, shortly about uh, a whole bunch of uh, governor's races and why they are even more important this year than than you may understand. And it goes beyond Donald Trump. So we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, also, Desi Doyne, you'll be, uh, well, here all day, but uh, <laughs> here at the end of the day with a uh, your latest Green News report, including some accountability coming, maybe, for someone in this administration. <laughs> yes, I know. It's uh, it's pretty unusual. Accountability is so rare these days that it's, it makes news when there might be some. Might. We'll see. Um, and also, uh, more news on why this is... Uh, once again, the most important election ever, no, really, regarding the climate. Yes. So that'll be coming up as well. And on top of everything else that we're trying to deal with and cover as Election Day approaches on Tuesday, you know, no one said this was going to be easy, not by a long shot. With everything else going on, with the voter suppression, with the concerns about the machines, with the regular good old-fashioned politicking, with the insane Donald Trump making up all kinds of stuff. ProPublica reports that voter intimidation is now cropping up in Texas during early voting and that it has been terrible. And we're not even to Election Day yet. Uh, they report tempers are flaring during early voting in Dallas County, Texas. And there are reports of voter in intimidation now on the rise, the country's nonpartisan election administrator said that uh, the harassment, including name calling and interrogating voters waiting in line, is the worst that she has seen ever. 
Tony Pippins Poole, the county's election director in Dallas, said, I've been here for 30 years in this harassment that's going on. I haven't ever seen the likes of this. For example, at the Lakeside Activity Center in Mesquite, Texas, election administrators received complaints of a partisan poll watcher looking over voters' shoulders as they were casting ballots and questioning voters on their politics. Oh, my gosh. That person was later escorted out by the Mesquite Police Department after refusing to leave the premises, according to Pippin's pool. Of course, Texas law requires that any form of electioneering cannot occur within 100 feet of a polling place. That includes inside the polling place. And that includes passing out political literature, advocating for or against candidates or issues. Uh, poll greeters at Dallas's Lockwood Library reported being harassed and verbally abused and described a person with a bullhorn driving by yelling about baby killers, according to a tweet by the Texas Civil Rights Project. Uh, they haven't, uh, well, at least a day or so ago when that uh, report came out from the uh, Civil Rights Project, they hadn't yet found this particular person who had been driving by every now and again. Uh, at the Richardson Civic Center, there have been multiple reports of a person standing beyond the 100-foot perimeter, but accosting voters as they arrived, calling people alligators who live in swamps. Don't have any idea what that might mean. Yeah. But yes, tensions are high across Texas and across the entire country, frankly, uh, but certainly in Texas where they're in this... Um, unexpectedly close race between Republican incumbent Ted Cruz and Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke. Uh, that has driven record-breaking registration and early voting turnout, but no one knows what to, uh, any of it will ultimately amount to. We don't know, so just keep voting. Help your friends vote. Help your family vote. Uh, volunteer to bring people to the polls. Volunteer to be a poll watcher. A poll watcher, but not one who is harassing correct. people at the polls. Be there to protect voters from people yep. who would like to intimidate them out of casting their vote. More uh, problems. You know, we spoke with uh, Gene Kesmarek last week. Uh, I think it was last week. <laughs> was it last week on this show? <laughs> She's a longtime government watchdog and election integrity champion out in DuPage County, Illinois, in the right wing suburbs of Chicago. Uh, she's also running as a Democrat for county clerk this year in DuPage, and she's been endorsed, by the way, by the local Daily Herald, who says she is a no-brainer this year, given her years of watchdogging uh, that uh, county clerk's office and the DuPage County Election Commission, which both of whom will be merging next year, thanks in no small part to her lawsuit demanding same. Well, in uh, in DuPage, they use 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems for early voting and hand-marked paper ballots on Election Day. As she told us last week, the county would not reveal to her where hundreds of those touchscreens and optical scanners actually came from as they were supplied by a vendor from uh, somewhere else. There were used systems from somewhere else, and they wouldn't give her the serial numbers so that she could even track down where those machines had come from. Nonetheless, we're all keeping up the fight. We're all trying to vote. We're all trying to do the best we can here. Uh, yet we get this from DuPage, from that same da Daily Herald. 
If he could, John Jellin says he would have voted last week for Democrat Lynn LaPlante in the race for DuPage County Board Chairman. But every time the Glen Allen resident pressed a button on the voting machine touchscreen for LaPlante, it showed him voting for incumbent Republican Dan Cronin. The glitch, as the Daily Herald calls it, happened again when he tried to vote in a judge's race. So Jellen simply decided not to vote in either race, especially since all of his other votes seemed to be fine. That's not good. Uh, he said, I came here. I came there not knowing about those two races, so it wasn't particularly critical to me. Still, he alerted the DuPage Democratic Party about what happened. Good. Thank you, Mr. Jellen. That is the right thing to do. Let the uh, let your local parties know about it. Let poll workers know about it. Let your county headquarters know about it. Let your secretary of state know about it. Let uh, the media know about it. And, of course, call 866-OUR-VOTE to report it to the uh, National Election Protection Hotline. So uh, now some some more good news as far as that goes to Page County Election Commission officials confirmed that those two touchscreen machine that that there were two touchscreen voting machines at early voting sites that were replaced as a precautionary measure after similar reports. So report these type of problems. And yes, it's the right thing to do when this happens to take them out of commission. So uh, good on DuPage in this case for doing that, for taking them out of commission. However, commission officials say they've done extensive testing of the machines and can't find anything wrong with them. A third machine being used at an early voting site in Elmhurst also passed tests over the weekend. The uh, commission's executive director, Susan Fonstock, said there is nothing wrong with the machines. They are working fine. Oh, well, so much for my praise for the DuPage County uh, Election Commission, I guess. Still, I'm glad that they took those machines out of service. She says, uh, we received a concern and we addressed that concern immediately by taking them out. Well, thank you for that, I guess. Um, so we've seen this now in Georgia, in Illinois, in Texas. I suspect we are going to see it elsewhere. The uh, Feinstock uh, stress that only a few complaints have been received countywide since early voting began back on uh, October 22nd. And uh, tens of thousands of people have been voting early. She says that uh, she confirms what Kazmarek told us last week, that voting has been very busy. But she says it is going well. She says, I want everybody to feel confident about coming out and using the voting system. There's nothing wrong with the machines. Okay. If you say so, DuPage uh, Democratic Party chair said we have argued against using these outdated touchscreens for for years. One vote flipped is too many. Ballot integrity is critical. Use paper ballots, said Chairman Robert Pikert. Uh, and Kazmarek agrees, telling people in DuPage in any event to wait till Election Day because that's your only chance to vote on paper ballots. Our friend Iris from Georgia writes in to uh, Bradcast at Bradblog.com to tell us that she applied for a vote by mail ballot in, wait for it, Georgia weeks ago. But as many others have also reported in DeKalb County, that is uh, Atlanta and, and suburbs east of Atlanta, her ballot did not show up. 
Democrats, in fact, had said they turned in uh, some 5,000 vote-by-mail requests, but the county only said they received 47 of them. Iris seemed to be one of them, uh, she wrote last night, to say after I called 10 days ago, leaving voicemail with my info and my not receiving a ballot. She says, I finally early voted on Tuesday. Well, that's good, I guess. But uh, when you early vote in Georgia or when you vote on Election Day, you are also forced to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen machines. But I guess it's good that she she got her vote in. Nonetheless, she said uh, she needed assistance three times when three different next screens on Georgia's unverifiable touchscreen systems were frozen. Sigh. I guess, uh, you know, not that we've been warning about this for 15 years. Well, and because she listens to the show, she knows don't walk away without casting that vote and make sure you tell somebody. And uh, I hope they took those machines out of service, but I don't know. You know, it's Georgia. So, uh, hey, in theory, she was able to cast a vote anyway. Not sure that will be the case for other voters who may never receive their absentee ballot and may not be able to get to the polling place in DeKalb County. Uh, Iris adds, I'm worried, as you informed, that there might be a runoff and that the Abrams, uh, Stacey Abrams voters won't have the same energy. Stacey Abrams is the Democrat running for governor against Brian Kemp, the secretary of state, who is also the Republican candidate for governor. And maybe if neither of those two candidates gets more than 50 percent, because there is also a libertarian in the race, then there will be a runoff in a few weeks. And yes, we will still be following Georgia at that point, I suspect. Oh, and then uh, she touched base this morning to send a picture of her, guess what? Absentee vote-by-mail ballot that finally showed up. Oh, wow. Okie dokie then. Don't vote it, Iris. It's a trap. <laughs> They'll throw you in jail for double voting at this t- at this point. So that's what's going on uh, in Georgia. As I said, nobody said this was going to be easy. Even with, you heard at the top of the show, Oprah Winfrey down there in Georgia uh, (laughs) getting big crowds there in support of Stacey Abrams, who would become the first African-American female ever as governor in this great country. Uh, But, yeah, we got a lot of hurdles to overcome in the next few days through November 6th and beyond with the inevitable court battles and the fights to count ballots that I promise will be coming. Democracy is messy, and especially in a year like this, uh, with so much at stake and temper so high, along with huge turnout. But a bit more on the current state of play in the Georgia gubernatorial race between Republican Secretary of State and champion vote suppressor Brian Kemp and his Democratic opponent Stacey Abrams in a moment after we take a a quick break, along with a ton of other governor races around the country, which frankly should have Democrats very excited about turning out uh, in uh, for a lot of these races and turning a lot of states potentially from red to blue. But while that would certainly be good news for Democrats on Tuesday if it happened, there's another reason the Democrats should be really excited about those governor uh, governor races. Because what happens on Tuesday in 2018, next Tuesday, is going to have a huge effect nationally for the entire country for the next decade. 
I'll explain why, and we'll talk about those races and why they are so important right after this with Vox.com's Dylan Scott. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. On Wednesday, Georgia Secretary of State and GOP gubernatorial candidate Brian Kemp abruptly pulled out of his final scheduled televised debate with Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams in order to spend more time campaigning with Donald Trump, according to a New York Times report today. That face-off had been planned for almost two months before Kemp, for some reason, decided he'd rather be with Trump at a rally than facing questions from the media In a face-off with Abrams, she could become the nation's first African-American female governor if she can overcome the remarkable voter suppression that we have seen under Kemp, who is overseeing his own election to governor as secretary of state. He tried to shift the blame to Abrams for not being willing to accommodate his schedule in what is seen as an extremely close race, frankly, like so many others across the country this year. That governor's race in Georgia, with its extraordinary suppression attempts by Kemp, has gotten quite a bit of attention, at least here on the broadcast. Also, nationally, the reportedly very tight uh, fight for governor in Florida, where Democrat Andrew Gillum hopes to defeat Republican Ron DeSantis in order to turn the executive mansion blue for the first time in decades in the Sunshine State. That, too, has received a fair amount of coverage. And yesterday we discussed the surprisingly tough re-election fight for Oregon's progressive incumbent, Democratic Governor Kate Brown, in what is otherwise considered to be a very blue state. We've also covered quite a few of the concerns about some of the very close races for the U.S. Senate that will determine whether Democrats overcome the odds to take back a majority there or if Republicans hang on to the upper chamber and maybe even expand their very slim margin. That's gotten a lot of uh, national coverage, of course. Uh, As well, hundreds of U.S. House races are taking place in battlegrounds in virtually every state. That will determine whether Democrats are able to finally win back a majority in at least one House of Congress, despite widespread suppression, particularly through gerrymandering when it comes to the U.S. House. But Democrats think their uh, their prospects are good in Congress, and uh, they hope to at least be able to offer some check on Donald Trump over the next two years there. And with it, perhaps put some breaks on our ongoing national emergency. There are also over a thousands, I should say thousands, of state and local races and ballot initiatives up for grabs in next Tuesday's crucial midterms in all 50 states. 
and a bunch of other gubernatorial races in uh, more than two dozen states where Democrats hope to flip executive mansions from red to blue, which would be swell for Democrats for several immediate reasons, but also for reasons regarding redistricting coming up after the 2020 census and with it control of the U.S. House beginning in, yes, 2022. Yeah, voting in the uh, 2018 election will, in fact, have a huge impact on 2022 elections, believe it or not. And in many states, that will be because of who is elected governor next Tuesday. After nearly a decade in the wilderness, Democrats are bullish about winning a bevy of governorships in big swing states next week. Cam Joseph reports over at TPM. A result that would not only return them to power in key battlegrounds, but give Democrats a much better chance at competing for the House in the next decade. If Democrats win governorships in Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin and Ohio, all of which seem possible this year, that could yield 15 to 20 more winnable seats for House Democrats in the average election, says Joseph, starting in 2022. Democratic strategist and redistricting expert John Hagner says that the combination of Democratic governors and reapportionment takes 25 to 30 House seats and makes them more winnable over the next 10 years. As Dylan Scott and Stavros Agorakos, uh, Agarakis, I think, observe over at Vox.com this week, Republicans currently hold an astonishing two-thirds of the governor's mansions across the country, giving the GOP an overwhelming advantage in controlling state governments. This year, however, a remarkable 26 of those states are on the ballot. Forecasts from leading election watchers show about 18 of the most competitive governor's races in the 2018 midterms are currently Republican-held seats, and Democrats finally have a lot of chances to regain some ground, they report. They also uh, cite not only the important issues that will determine will be determined by who holds the governor's mansions, but also what it will mean for Democrats nationally after the next round of redistricting in 2020, and with it, control of Congress for the next decade. Joining us now to try and wrestle at least some of this to ground, wish us luck uh, when it comes to these uh, gubernatorial battlegrounds on Tuesday and what it may or may not mean for all of us over the next 10 years or so is Dylan Scott. He's a political reporter for Vox.com where he focuses on health care and domestic policy after previously reporting himself for Talking Points Memo the National Journal, and others. Mr. Scott, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Uh, you have been doing yeoman's work, rounding up uh, key races this year, not only for governor, but also the House and Senate, and on your regular beat, how health care concerns are playing into all of this. I want to try to get to some of that as well. But first, I want to look at some of the states that may result in big shifts in uh, the redistricting fight for uh, 2020. Do you concur with uh, John Hagner's assessment there that uh, five or six governorships could result in as many as 30 additional House seats for Democrats over the next decade? Well, I'll leave the, the math to John. I, I trust him to crunch the numbers. But certainly the, the thrust of the point is correct. Um, 
most of the governors who are elected this fall are still going to be in office in 2021 when the renewed redistricting process will start after the next census. And while, you know, I think the important thing to understand about redistricting is that every state does it their own way. There are some states like Iowa Mm -hmm. that has an independent commission that is isolated a little bit from politics and a lot, but a lot of other states uh, state legislatures draw the maps and the governors wield the veto pen over those maps. And though that's why Democrats uh, either making gains or not in the governor elections this fall is so important. I think the easiest way maybe for your listeners to understand it is that Republicans won a lot of governor seats in 2010. Mm-hmm. That gave them a lot of control over redistricting in 2011. And, you know, even though in 2012, 2014, and 2016 they the Democrats actually won more votes for their House candidates across the country. The maps were drawn as such that Republicans were still able to hold a majority for almost the whole, for, for the whole last, um, you know, all of this last decade. Yeah. So I think the stakes should be pretty clear to people after what we've seen with GOP control across the country over the last 10 years. Should be pretty clear to people, but that's what I'm worried about. Uh, from your reporting, is this something that uh, voters understand? It's one of the reasons I wanted to highlight it here today. Uh, is it something that voters can even wrap their heads around? Because I think it is really crucial uh, looking out, as I say, over the next 10 years. But we're at an obviously insane and very noisy political moment. So do you sense that voters understand the importance of these governor's race uh, races to the nation as a whole reaching out uh, over a decade? Well, I think you're right in that redistricting can really seem like an abstract thing to most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the most interesting developments in 2018 is that uh, in this spring, during the Ohio primary election, actually, there was a, a, a ballot initiative on the ballot during the primary for technical reasons we don't need to get into. And it, it was basically a redistricting proposal that would have set up a commission similar, I think, in, to what Iowa has instituted, a, an independent commission that's isolated from you know the, the political officials mm-hmm. to, to oversee redistricting the next time around. So it was basically, voters were finally asked, do you want to try to take politics out of the drawing of congressional maps as much as possible, and the voters overwhelmingly approve that proposal. And we have another um, we have another ballot initiative coming up in November mm-hmm. in Michigan that's not exactly the same, but it's similar in that it's you know it's a redistricting reform that's being presented directly to the voters. And so I think, especially again after what we've seen since 2010, with Republicans clearly you know only having a the support of a minority of Americans and yet controlling the House for eight years now and controlling the Senate for four, um, you know, people, I think, are, are getting a better understanding of how important this issue is and how much it dictates uh, the political realities in the United States. And with a couple of these questions, um, I think it's interesting that it's being presented to the voters and we're seeing overwhelming support for reform. Now, whether that translates into votes for governor, I think, is a, a question that's hard to answer. There are obviously a lot of other issues that are dominant these campaigns, you know, healthcare, education, taxes, the real sort of pocketbook issues that I think we think about the most. But in general, I, I do think you can make the case that redistricting is becoming a more salient issue that voters do care about. And when they're given the opportunity to weigh in directly, they've signaled that they're interested in reforming this process and making it a little more fair. You round up what uh, you and Stavros uh, describe as the 13 most important governor elections in 2018 over at Vox.com. I know that we can't get to all of them. And as a matter of fact, I think you don't even have Michigan on that list as I'm uh, yeah, we looking had, through uh, it. Yeah. 
we had to we had to call this list down because <laughs> you you ran the numbers already, but there are so many competitive races this year that we had to narrow it our scope a little bit. Yeah, and that's uh, one place where uh, you we could see a key Democratic takeover. Um, and, and I say key after all of these years, what Michigan has gone through with the uh, the uh, emergency manager uh, laws and uh, the Flint, Michigan crisis and everything else. They could see it looks like a Democratic uh, governor after Tuesday. Um, but which uh, which of these um, and, and as you know, they're also having that uh, that ballot initiative when it comes to redistricting. So uh, which of the states are you looking at as uh, key uh, in the redistricting battle uh, next Tuesday? Well, I think Ohio is one obvious one. Um, Ohio is a state where it's a, a joint project. Redistricting is a joint project between the state legislature and the, Repub- you know, and the governor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's an, and that's a state where Republicans won in a big wave in 2010 and were able to draw the maps more to their liking um, for the last decade. And in that, that race is a razor thin based on the polling. It's between Democrat Richard Cordray, mm-hmm. who worked under President Obama on consumer finance protection, and Republican Mike DeWine, who served in the U.S. Senate representing the state and has also been attorney general. So they're two long-tenured public officials. You know, there's not a lot of fresh energy necessarily in this race, but we know pretty certainly that the Republican, that the legislature is going to remain Republican, again, in part because these maps are drawn the way they are. The GOP's advantage is just too... Uh, too overwhelming for Democrats to overcome, even mm. in a good year. But the polling between Cordray and DeWine is is neck and neck. And if Cordray is able to win, even with a Republican legislature, he'll have the power of the veto, which will give Democrats a lot more influence over the Ohio maps than they had last time around. And obviously, this is a state with 19 representatives. So you can imagine if, yeah. if the maps are just a little fairer and become a little more competitive, it could be like something we've seen, like what we've seen in Pennsylvania this year, where mm-hmm. just drawing fairer maps opens opens up at least two or three seats where Democrats should be more competitive than they are right now. So Ohio is an obvious one, I think. Um, Wisconsin is another race where, you know, the Republican, part of what's, I think, important in those two, in Wisconsin, Ohio, is the legislature is almost guaranteed to remain Republican. So the real question is, are Democrats going to get a voice at all in redistricting? And the only way to do that is if they win the governor's race. So the race between Scott Walker and Democrat Tony Evers, I think, is another one to watch for redistricting. Um, And yeah, so I mean, Again, I admittedly am not an expert in redistricting law across all of these states, mm-hmm. but um, and, and each state has its own uh, its own system. But I think with there's really only a couple of states. Iowa is one um, where the the governor and the legislature don't play a role in the in redistricting. So more likely than not, the mechanics may vary from state to state, but in the in the states mm-hmm. with these competitive governors' elections, it's going to end up having an impact and on the ne- new congressional maps. Yeah, and all of them that that you just uh, ran through there, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa, uh, all look like they have very good chances for uh, Democrats to take over those states. And of course, add to that Florida, uh, where Andrew Gillum is running a very competitive race against Ron DeSantis. And when I say competitive, um, I think Gillum is has been up in uh, most of the polls of late, if I am recalling uh, correctly, although I don't almost take, every poll. Yeah, yeah, he's been ahead. Uh, though I should, I have been cautioning on this show. Don't listen to the polls; they're meaningless <laughs> at this point. They they don't tell us anything in many respects, and maybe we'll talk about that in a minute too. But yeah, those are all states, several of which went for Donald Trump in 2016, that look like they are almost ready to flip to Democrats this year. And then we've got some of these other. 
a lot of surprising races uh, in otherwise red states. You mentioned Iowa, for example, where uh, former governor, uh, Republican Governor Terry Branstad, uh, he's now Trump's uh, ambassador to, to China, but he was Iowa governor almost literally forever, something like 22 years he served as governor there over two different tenures. He's out now, and so you we're looking at a, a race where the Democrat could win. Would that have, uh, how I should say, how will that affect, will that have an effect on the 2020 first-in-the-nation caucuses in Iowa if a Democrat takes over? Well, that's a great question. I don't know that it would necessarily have a, an effect on the caucuses, but I do think it's, a, it's an interesting example. You know, a lot of the Democratic energy this year has been about, uh, you know, about younger, more progressive, more diverse candidates, um, and 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 in more, you know, younger, more progressive, more diverse places. That's where a lot of our attention has been focused. But Iowa is a good example. You know, Middle America, overwhelmingly white, um, a lot a lot of rural residents in that area, obviously, and yet we've still seen a backlash to Republicans in the Trump years. Um, you know, the president's approval rating in Iowa has fallen uh, precipitously since he was inaugurated and we shouldn't all, we also shouldn't lose track of course of just the fact that local issues affect a lot of these campaigns mm-hmm. we, everything we intend to think of everything as being nationalized now um, but you know one of the reasons that it looks like Governor Reynolds is in trouble is she tried to she and the legislature have tried to privatize for all intents and purposes the state's Medicaid program mm-hmm. there's been a lot of contra- controversy about that a lot of concerns about how it would affect the quality of health care and now she seems you know the Democrat in that race Fred Hubble seems to be polling a few points ahead of her so anyway that was a long way of saying Iowa is actually the one exception of a state where because they have an independent commission that does the redistricting um, they, that, it shouldn't be a, a affect that too much. I don't know that it would have a direct effect on the caucuses, but I think the, what's what stuck out to me is just the fact that Iowa is a po- uh, part of this conversation at all, and yeah. I think it shows sort of how widespread um, the backlash that the Republicans have reaped under um, President Trump uh, has become. And uh, there's a few states, I think, where that's the case. Another one of them is Kansas. Speaking of both yeah. uh, a case where you've got uh, both local issues and national issues with uh, let's say controversial Chris Kobach, Secretary of State, running for governor as the Republican there um, against the Democrat Laura Kelly. But um, and that's supposed to be a very close race, neck and neck. But there is a third candidate there, Greg Orman, who's running as an independent. Um, does anybody know what to, to, to make of that at this point? It seems that Chris Kobach is so unpopular nationally that he, even in Kansas, might otherwise be defeated on Tuesday, but for this independent in the race. Yeah, this race really does have everything. You know, the Democrat, uh, Laura Kelly, has gotten the support of several you know, high-profile Republicans in Kansas, including her former GOP governor. Um, but yeah, the, the Greg Orman is definitely the X factor. He, for your read- listeners who might not know, he re- actually ran for Senate in 2014. Mm-hmm. It was actually very successful. It was a very strange situation that I actually happened to cover quite closely. The Democrat dropped out of the race, and mm-hmm. Orman became the de facto Democrat, and actually came closer than you might have thought to uh, knocking off the Republican incumbent that year. So he has a high profile. People know who Greg Orman is, and so his presence as a third third party or a third independent candidate does throw a, uh, a wrench in things. It was notable this week, actually, one of Orman's top campaign aides actually resigned and endorsed Kelly, the Democrat, mm-hmm. and basically saying that he was worried about a split vote 
you know, between Kelly, the Democrat, and Norman, the Independent, would give it to Kobach, the Republican. And so I do think people are cognizant of that. And three-way races are just unpredictable. And so, it, you know, if a, if an independent candidate gets 10% of the vote, um, it's hard to know which way that ends up swinging things with an unpopular Republican and a, you know, pretty popular Democrat, but one who's trying to win election in a pretty red state. And, you know, since you covered this, I, I do have a question or two about this. Uh, one, uh, Greg Orman, uh, the independent here, is thought to be uh, more uh, leaning towards Democrats than leaning towards mm. Republicans. And yet, and you said his what was his campaign manager, his treasurer who had uh, dropped out one uh, of his, this week? Uh, yeah. I, I'd have to check the title, but yeah. it was one of his top aides. I mean, uh, it attracted a lot of attention. Yeah, and so back when he ran for the Senate, again as an independent, it was the Democrat who dropped out uh, in order to try to stop the Republican from winning. They weren't successful, but, uh, you know, sort of gave uh, Greg Orman a boost there. Is there, uh, does he not remember that? Is there no uh, turnabout where he says, uh, okay, thanks, you, you Democrats, you made it a little easier for me last time. I'll do it for you this time by dropping out of this race. Any sense that that could happen still? I don't, I, it seems too late. I mean, we've seen in Alaska another three-way race where mm-hmm. actually there was a, one of the candidates decided to drop out and endorse a number. It, it, it seems too late for Orman to make a, a last-minute uh, reversal on this. I do get the sense that, you know, there are a lot of Kem- Kansas Democrats who think, you know, Greg Orman had a chance to win a statewide election in Kansas. We even cleared our candidate out of the way to make it a- easier for him, yeah. to your point, and he, he didn't win. Um, so for him to run now as an independent and potentially sw- swing the vote, and especially Especially, I think, and, and this is what, especially, I think it's a, it's offensive to people because, or frustrating for people because Kobach is so unpopular. He's so associated with Trump, yeah. um, and, and I think a lot of people are, are really frustrated with the, you know, what he's brought to Kansas and sort of the reputation he's given Kansas. Uh, this is a place that kind of values its its perception as a as a sensible, middle, moderate, middle American state. Um, and so, you know, I do think there's a frustration there, and it's just the, but unfortunately, you know, Orman Orman has. I guess every right. He's he's pretty well fun. You know, he's able to fund his campaign largely his on his own. And so, you know, I I know there were conversations between his campaign, I think, and Democrats or in 2014. You know, mm-hmm. there was clearly some kind of coordination that led to the Democrat uh, dropping out of that race. But apparently, those relationships weren't still strong enough this year uh, to get him out ahead of election day. And so, we're heading in with this unpredictable three-way dynamic. It, and it is frustrating. And I'm all in favor of, frankly, I'm in favor of uh, third parties, independents, libertarians, greens. I, I want everyone to get into this democracy. But when you look at it and when you see uh, that uh, Greg Orman is routinely pull, polling like nine or ten percent, does not have a chance to win this thing, I, I don't think by anyone's estimation. Uh, and when it's going to end up giving this governorship potentially to Chris Kobach, who has been just so horrible for the otherwise great state of Kansas over the past eight years, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure what what he's thinking or if he's thinking at all. And yeah, it is kind of uh, maddening there. Uh, you mentioned Alaska. We had a, a similar case. The current governor, uh, the independent governor, Bill Walker. I think he's the only independent governor in the nation. He dropped out of this uh, three way race just a few weeks ago through his support. To the Democrat uh, endorsed Mark Begich. Uh, could we finally see a Democratic governor in Sarah Palin's own uh, old uh, uh, governor's mansion up there in Alaska this year? 
Well, to your point, you know, the, the race got a big shakeup here in the last few weeks, and so obviously that makes it a little more unpredictable than usual. But we have seen a couple polls since Governor Walker dropped out and endorsed the Democratic candidate, Mark Begich, and it's, it's close. It, they're within about three or four points of each other. So I think there's certainly a good chance Begich was a, you know, a U.S. senator for Alaska for a term. Mm-hmm. He was the mayor of Anchorage, the state's biggest city. So, you know, he certainly comes into the race with a high profile. And now that it's just a two-way race between him uh, and the Republican Mike Dunleavy, uh, it should be competitive. It's in, you know, a lot of the election forecasters put it in the toss-up category. Alaska is just a, an idiosyncratic state with a real independent streak. You know, I think it's telling that Walker was the only independent governor um, or, and, or is currently the only independent governor. Um, so this is a state that kind of doesn't fit neatly into any, any boxes. Um, but now that it's a, it's a two-way race, I think Democrats have to feel good about their chances. Obviously, the fear there was the same thing we're talking about in Kansas, that the more moderate, centrist, Democrat, and independent would split each other's votes and open up the uh, open up a path for the Republican to win election. And now, so in Alaska, Democrats have managed to avoid that, and Begich at least gets a clean shot at beating Dunleavy on Election Day. I'm going to point folks over to your piece, of course, over at Vox.com for uh, the rest of these, because we can't get to them all, uh, and it looks like we could see uh, New Mexico currently under Republican control. That could uh, flip to a Democratic governor next Tuesday. That could even happen in South Dakota, you guys note, incredibly enough. So I, I think there are no there are no safe seats here anywhere. Uh, and anybody who thinks otherwise uh, isn't really paying attention. But one I do want to ask you about real quickly, because uh, we have been covering for some years uh, who I describe as the nation's dumbest governor, perhaps in history. That would be Maine's uh, Republican Paul LePage. He is mercifully termed out this year after winning three-way races, in fact, in Maine for the past two terms. So now we've got only two candidates this year. Is it uh, possible that the Democrat could uh, take over the, the governor's mansion in Maine? Finally, I'd certainly. I think they'd have to be favored. Uh, Jan- Janet Mills, uh, the currently the state's attorney general, is mm-hmm. the Democrat in that race. She's running running against uh, businessman Sean Moody. Um, but obviously, LePage looms large. If nothing else, he's a he's a bigger than life personality. And so, yeah, his his governorship and his administration over the last eight years, I think, is a defining feature of the race. We know that he is not very popular in the state. Um, we also know that President Trump is not very popular there. And so, you know, the polling. Maine's another kind of idiosyncratic state with a with an independent streak, and the polling's been a little all over the place. But the last couple surveys have shown Mills with a pretty solid lead, about eight points. So it's hard to be too comfortable predicting anything in Maine, um, yeah. given its history. You know, it just elected somebody like Paul LePage for two terms. Um, but Democrats have to, I think, feel good about their chances heading into Election Day. I think it would be uh, difficult to predict anything happening anywhere. Do you have, uh, Dylan Scott, any confidence in any? Any of the polling this year, aside uh, from, you know, an astounding number of close races we've been talking about, uh, not just for governor, but House, Senate. It seems to me there is no actual model for this kind of an election that we are looking at on Tuesday and that pollsters are uh, pretty much guessing at what turnout is going to be. And, and, you know, and, and by the way, what effect voter suppression will have on a bunch of these contests uh, should Anybody take any confidence from what the numbers that are being reported from pollsters across the country? I don't want to be like, you know, one of those Republicans before uh, 2016. Oh, the polls are skewed and all of that. 
But it seems to me that nobody really knows what the turnout is actually going to amount to on Tuesday. It's a great question, yes. I think one of the most challenging things about this cycle is we're, look, we're starting to expect you know, a historic amount of turnout for a midterm off-year election, but we don't exactly know what that means, how high it can really go, yeah. um, or whether that there's sort of an inflated sense of enthusiasm and actually turnout will be lower than we expect. As for the polling... I think one of the best lessons that we've seen from 2016 is that pollsters are at least a lot more transparent about how unpredictable or uncertain polling really is. Uh, the New York Times, as some of your listeners may know, has been running live polls of a bunch of House and Senate races across the country, really kind of opening up their methodology and opening up the process to uh, their readers that might try to make it as transparent as possible. Pollsters, I've noticed this year, have started you know, giving, giving the results for various turnout scenarios to, I think, convey some of the uncertainty about this. So I think we should always be put, treating polls as a data point. They're one data point amid a, a whole host of things like unemployment rates and tr- President Trump's approval rating and, and just the nature of these states and, and House districts. So it, it's one thing to factor in, but you certainly shouldn't be you know, looking at somebody who has a, a three-point lead in the polling average and say, well, that person's guaranteed to win uh, election. One of my colleagues, Andrew Prokop, wrote a piece that just said simply, the polls can be wrong. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to keep in mind. There, you know, there are a lot of smart people who are doing this, and they make the the decisions that they make for a reason. But you know, they're human, and it's an imperfect process. They're doing their best, but we shouldn't be taking these them as as gospel. They're part of a bigger picture. Last question here about those smart people making these decisions. Uh, you cover healthcare uh, quite a bit over at Vox.com. Uh, Democrats have made that and the protection of pre-existing conditions coverage central to their campaign campaigns across the country while sort of shying away from, you know, promising to be a check on Donald Trump. But again, from your reporting, what do you see this election as ultimately being about this year for Democrats in any event, health care or Donald Trump? It's a great question. I, when I talk to voters, I get the sense that more than anything, they want to beat Donald Trump, especially the Democratic base. They just want to beat Trump. They'll even accept imperfect Democratic candidates so that they can beat Republicans. I do, though, I think when you ask people or press people a little bit, like, what's the most important issue to you? Mm-hmm. Healthcare is right at the top of that list. Um, so kind of once people get past their visceral reaction to Trump, whatever that may be, I do think health care is, is m- maybe their top concern. We've actually, my colleagues and I have been looking at some Google search trends that suggest health care is definitely the issue at the top of voters' minds right now. Um, so, you know, polit- there's, no, there's no simple, you know, politics and elections are never, ever about one thing. Um, I do think that this, this, this midterm seems to be defined, I think, duly by by Trump and people sort of whether that visceral reaction, especially among the Democratic base, motivates people to go um, to go to the polls at a higher rate than they maybe otherwise would have. But for maybe the more persuadable people, or for you know maybe the less dyed in the wool partisans, I do think healthcare, in terms of the the issues that really affect them and the people they care about the most, healthcare is definitely at the top of their minds. 
Dylan Scott is a political reporter over at Vox.com, where you should look up his work uh, and more details on all of these governor's races, uh, which uh, 13 most important, as he describes them. But there are even more than that. He also has a roundup for the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. You can also follow him on the Twitters at Dylan L. Scott. Dylan, greatly appreciate you joining us uh, here today. I hope you don't mind if we uh, give you a shout to try to make sense of whatever happens uh, on Tuesday, because uh, there's going to be a hell of a lot to try to figure out in the days ahead. Not a problem. I'd be happy to. Thank take you, sir. Yeah, right. thank you. Woo! I'm exhausted. <laughs> All right, uh, take a quick break, get a drink of water, take a breather, and we will be back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right after this on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. So did you get all that, Desi? Are you taking notes? I did take notes, and wow, that's a lot of stuff you guys covered in a very short period of time. That's a lot of races in a lot of states. Uh, my thanks again to Dylan Scott. Boy, he's good. Um, so, yeah. Uh, speaking of a lot to cover, Desi Doyen, I guess we better get to it. Our latest Green News report. A Trump cabinet secretary was referred to the U.S. Justice Department for criminal investigation. DOJ now investigating Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. Researchers from NOAA predict that we will see more of these mega storms as our oceans continue to warm. New study finds even more buildup of heat in the oceans thanks to global warming. GM calls for an electric vehicle sales mandate. Plus, this is a cry for help. Teen climate activist in Sweden launches a kids strike to combat climate change. All of that striking news and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. They know the science is real. They're just making so much money they don't give a sh. Well, that was direct and correct. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it looks like Ryan Zinke could be in trouble. I guess my only question here is, what took so long? Well, Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke is the subject of at least 18 known federal investigations into allegations of his ethics and other misconduct. And yet he still hasn't been fired. Correct. Now, the Inspector General of the Interior Department has reportedly referred at least one of those corruption investigations to the Justice Department. That's a 
sign that the federal government is considering a criminal investigation into Zinke's actions. And yet he still hasn't been fired, and Congress hasn't even bothered to open an investigation of this guy? Yes, well, it is a Republican-majority Congress, so don't expect any action from them. Hmm. CNN reports that the DOJ investigation may be about a real estate business deal between Zinke and the chairman of oil giant Halliburton. Startling new research finds a massive buildup of heat in the ocean. The Washington Post reports that the world's oceans have been soaking up far more excess heat in recent decades than scientists realize as much as 60% more heat every year. That means more powerful storms, but also suggests that scientists may have underestimated the amount of warming we will see in coming decades and that the planet could warm at an even faster rate than projected, giving governments even less time to shift away from fossil fuels and prepare for climate change impacts. So the scientists were wrong again. Sort of. Get it right, scientists. Utility Dive reports that U.S. auto giant General Motors has called for a national electric vehicle sales mandate in public comments to the Department of Transportation. A national sales mandate would require car makers to sell a minimum number of electric vehicles every year. GM said it would get more than 7 million electric vehicles on the road by 2030, but environmental groups derided GM's proposal as, quote, trying to gaslight the American people. Because earlier this year, GM joined other auto companies in pushing the Trump administration to roll back the Obama administration's updated mileage and emission standards that would have effectively achieved the same goal of promoting electric vehicle sales. You know, nothing is stopping GM from making electric cars and selling them, just saying GM. But some good news. U.S. airline Delta has announced it plans to join other major airlines in ditching plastic straws and stirrers on board all of its flights and said that it will stop wrapping its amenity kits in plastic to help fight the scourge of plastic pollution. So there's that. Yeah, but it won't start until next year. The good news, however, is that major companies are finally acknowledging the epic stupidity of digging up fossil fuels that have been buried for millions of years to make a plastic item used for only a few seconds that pollutes the environment for hundreds of years. Finally, at a rally to get out the vote in Nevada last week, President Obama called the midterm elections on November 6th the most important elections we have yet lived through. This November's elections are more important than any I can remember in my lifetime, and that includes when I was on the ballot. The stakes are high. That's not an exaggeration when it comes to the accelerating impacts of dangerous man-made climate change. And a young climate activist in Sweden agrees. At a climate rally in Helsinki over the weekend, Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg launched a kids' strike to boycott school to push politicians to move quickly on climate. Thunberg urged adults like those in the U.S. who are old enough to vote in the midterm elections to think seriously about the consequences of the choices they make today. The future of all the coming generations rests on your shoulders. What you do now we children can't undo in the future. So please treat the crisis as the crisis it is and give us a future. 
Our lives are in your hands. Yeah, any excuse not to go to school. <laughs> Wish I had thought of that. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Well, she does have a very important goal in mind. Okay, that's very nice of you. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, well, one quick follow-up before we get out here, Des, uh, concerning Ryan Zinke and the, this uh, criminal referral against him. Uh, and I think it might have to do with that land deal uh, that he was trying to pull off with... With the with Halliburton the, guy? The chairman of Halliburton, yeah, to open some kind of brewery with uh, a land deal that they've got going on. It seems pretty shady, uh, a, a brew pub, I think, up in Montana next to property of Ryan Zinke's. Yes. Uh, in any event, Politico is reporting today that uh, Zinke is already grooming his replacement uh, in the event that he may be stepping down or ousted by scandal. Deputy Secretary David Bernhardt, a former lobbyist for the Oil, gas, and water industries has been pegged to replace Zinke, um, and uh, they have been uh, grooming him apparently before it was even reported that the Interior Department's Inspector General had referred a criminal probe to the uh, Department Justice Department for Zinke. So they have been preparing uh, for this guy to have to step in in a hurry, David Bernhardt, former lobbyist for the oil and gas companies. So we got a coal lobbyist now in charge of the EPA after Scott Pruitt was pushed out. And we will soon have an oil and gas lobbyist in charge of the Interior Department. Completing the full takeover of industry into the government. Another reminder to vote next Tuesday, I should say. Yep. For some kind of accountability. Somehow we've got to turn this ship around this ship of fools all right my thanks to our producer desi doy and thank you des to my guest today dylan scott of vox.com and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's very busy show you can download it and take notes for free at bradblog.com drop me email if you like i'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the facebooks and the twitters i am simply the brad blog i hope you'll find follow and share me there and my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate for your support. You are the folks who keep us on the air. 100% listener-supported radio, podcast, whatever you want to call it that we do, are right here on the Bradcast every day. Thanks only to you folks who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah.